Social justice means applying the law equally to all people. But in practice, that doesn't always happen. I'm John Gonzalez. I'm here at my law partner, Jack Derora. We practice law. We seek social justice. On this show, we reveal the conflict between the two. You know, for a while, it was just us in the office over a cup of coffee talking about the news of the day with social justice issues dominating our culture. Our focus became, how do we as lawyers make a difference? And now it's not just us. Jack, it's just you and me today, and we're going to talk about an article that um, we both found very interesting by David Rothkop. And it's an article that... um, the, the title is uh, Trump Losing in Court Won't Be Enough to Save Democracy. But the gist of the article, at least what I took from it, is is that democracy is in really bad shape right now. Oh, I think he paints a very scary uh, but accurate picture of what's going on in America. It resonates with me because I've been thinking about this topic and, and I have concerns about it. When you think about what we learned when we were young in high school in our government and civics classes, we were taught about democracy. And I'm not here to parse terms here. We live in a democracy. I would say it's a representative democracy. We elect representatives to then go and do what we as the people want them to do. And um, we have a, a Concepts here that are also a republic because we have fundamental rights and constitutional rights that the democracy part of it can't trump. So there's a lot of um, uh, often a lot of tension between the two. But one of the things that struck me when I'm reading this article is we elect – take Ohio. We have elected representatives that if you get 50 percent plus one of the votes – you're in. You win. You can win an election by one vote, right? Right. But it seems to me that after that, the democratic process, the democrat democratic theory that the rest of it is based on just falls flat. Because these elected officials that get one vote or more above 50% are getting those votes in gerrymandered districts. Well, yeah, I was going to – I was just about to say the, the reason that we suffer the the situation we're in is because of three things. I think the author pointed them out. The gerrymandering, the election finance, and a attack on voting rights. So the system was set up a certain way, but certain groups have done their best to undermine – that system to further a very narrow interest with no concern for the big picture as to how government is supposed to work at its best. I personally believe gerrymandering is the death to democracy. It's a system where you can have a minority viewpoint that prevails because there is absolutely no way to get the people out of the system that aren't reflecting the views of the system. In Ohio, it's a perfect example. If a representative, our our federal representative, Jim Jordan, ran statewide, how much support do you think he would get? 
Oh, that's a really good question. Not as much support as he on a percentage basis that he gets in his, his congressional district, that's for sure. Yeah, I would bet that most people would not vote for Jim Jordan statewide because he's very far to the right of the political spectrum. And of late, he's decided that his job is not representing Ohioans as much as it is representing uh, people that want to see Donald Trump exonerated. Um, he's not doing the people's work anymore, in my mind, or at least from what I'm reading. And so if you think about that for a minute, why is he in office? He's in office because his district is one of the most gerrymandered districts in Ohio. Well, the, and the gerrymandering problem manifest in what's going on today with the vote for issue one. Somehow these politicians who have the majority in the House and the Senate pushed through this election today for this um, changing of how we handle amendments in the Constitution when it seems that the general population of Ohio is adamantly against this change. And I suppose we're going to find that out at about 9 o'clock tonight when all the votes get counted. Well, how in the world did they come up with this issue one when it seems like a substantial majority of Ohioans don't want it? Well, the only answer you come up with is gerrymandering, I think. And I, we're going to talk around a lot of different issues here and um, toss out ideas. But one of the things we see with this issue one, and again, you think of democracy I think gerrymandering is a is an outcrop of, of, a, of a broken system. But as part and parcel to that is the outright misinformation and lies mm. that our system allows. Uh, uh, we are told that lying is free speech. And when you see with issue one, the misrepresentations that have come out about it so that it's not an issue of Am I giving up a right to control politicians? But it's more of, you know, I'm not protecting the Constitution from outside interest groups that are going to come in and dominate our Constitution. If you don't have some truth in the system, I don't see how the system can work no matter what we do. That's a really good point. Uh, and those, I last evening I heard two advertisements for issue one, for and against, Back to back. And you and I know what's going on. We've read about it. We've talked about it. But if you're an uninformed citizen, you're bouncing off the walls trying to figure out which which one of these two presentations is truthful. I had somebody ask me today or, or address the concern about um, special interest groups coming into Ohio and amending our Constitution. Right. That's the great one. Yeah, that's a great one. I said, uh, do you know if that's ever happened? <laughs> <laughs> no, but aren't you concerned about that? I said, no, I'm not really concerned. Well, better yet, it did happen, right, with the casinos. I think that's an example. But if you remember from when we had Mike Curtin and Dale Butlin uh, on the show some weeks back, the Constitution was amended in 2015 to preclude that from happening. And to just double-check Dale and Mike, I looked it up today, and there it is. There's the, the amendment in 2015. And I look at that issue a little bit different than special interest groups. I mean, there's always going to be special interest groups, right? Groups that have 
an agenda, whether it's agenda that you support or I support mm. or not. And for a long time, people in Ohio wanted gambling. And the legislature did nothing. They sat on their hands. And finally, it got to the point where special interest groups were able to, to get this on the ballot. And they tried uh, at least twice that I can recall. The second time they were successful. Uh, what my issue back then was is that it created a monopoly, not that it bypassed the legislature what was doing nothing. Um, but again, uh, to me, that is a perfect example of people in our state, as far as a majority, seem to have wanted gambling. Right. right? Uh, people in our state, if you can believe the polling, want to codify a woman's right to be able to choose, whether it's life or abortion. Um, our legislature is going to let us down on that. They are not going to look at that at all. Um, I was having a discussion with my neighbor yesterday about um, this topic because really issue one comes down to abortion, abortion, right? And supposedly gun rights and yeah. gerrymandering. Yeah. And you know, I was telling him, I said, look, you're a guy that is very skeptical about government. He's very conspirac conspiratorial about it, right? Government's behind everything, everything bad in America. I said, well, how do you then give up your constitutional right to change what our politicians are doing? And he still didn't understand. And I said, well, let's speculate for a minute. Seems to me that there are a lot of people that are fed up with the Second Amendment's right, absolute right to bear arms. And I'm a Second Amendment person, but I can see that that's happening. It's happening around the country. Sooner or later, the pendulum's going to swing the other way, and the liberals, in his mind, are going to take over, and they're going to outlaw and come and get his gun. And I said, so when that happens, I said, I'll probably have passed away by then, but he's a young man. Remember, when you gave up your right to change the Constitution and enshrine your right to bear arms, because it just seems to me it's short-sighted. Well, I think uh, what we see is people bending the system to achieve certain goals without – which entails a disregard for the system itself. So you, they're willing to change the rules to get what they want, which is pretty short-sighted. And I hate to use the phrase because we hear it so much, undemocratic or un-American – but we, it, they're losing sight of the of the fact that we're a nation or a state, and you have to think about what's good for the state or the or the nation as a whole. My guess is is that most I shouldn't say most that's a, that's a bad word. There are people that do not want to live under a democratic form of government anymore, because a democratic form of government means that if more people believe in something than my side of that issue, it can be forced upon me. Meaning for abortion, the polls show you that close to 60%, I think 58, 59% of the people in Ohio would uh, like to see something like Roe versus Wade codified in our constitution. 
I disagree with you a little. Maybe it's just semantics. They they don't want to live in a democracy. I think what it speaks to is an intolerance for the big picture, an intolerance for other points of view. People are so attuned to one way of looking at things that that's all they can see, and they forget about the collateral damage that comes with changing the system to get what they want. Does that make sense? It does, and and, and uh, I don't think it's semantics. I think I'm just down the road further than you are. Uh, I, I look at people that I respect and um, and care about, and they want to be told what to do because it meets their interests at this time. I think I've told you that I've had uh, the discussion with my brother who's always talking on a big scale about freedom. I want freedom, you know, and and uh, the liberals are trying to take away my freedoms. And I said, you live in a gated community that I have to give a driver's license to get through to get to your house. <laughs> I said, you know, and you're worried about freedoms. I said, I think, uh, you know, you got to you got to consider what you're really talking about. He does not want the majority of people to take away his perceived freedom. And that's a democracy. If more people disagree with me and I want to live in a democracy, then I have to tolerate that until I can get the majority of people to agree with me. Now, we're setting aside fundamental rights and constitutional rights. These are just everyday things, you know, um, that we're talking about. But uh, it bothers me that, especially with issue one, that we're giving these politicians who are not democratically elected anymore the power that they're seeking. Well, and, and, the, and the greater harm is that they work actively to preclude the type of balance that we'd like in our Constitution. And going back to issue one, and I guess we have to get off issue one to <laughs> consume the show, you know, they they put it on an August election, which they had banned the prior year. They did this purposefully just to get what they wanted because they thought it would help down the road in defeating the abortion amendment to the Constitution on the ballot this November, and they certainly see it as a way of negating the efforts in 2024 to amend the Constitution again to preclude gerrymandering. So they are actively working to contort the system to fit their needs, which is really dangerous stuff. It is, and, and you know, we say they, that's painting a broad spectrum, but we know you and I know who they are. Basically, it's the leadership that a Republican um, are doing this. And again, you, you, to me, I start to question whether they really want to live in a democratic society. Because if they did, they wouldn't be taking these steps to make sure that the democratic process doesn't prevail. They're but, taking steps to make sure that their you know, I, policies I, prevail. I think that gets lost in the sauce. I think the way the human brain works, as little as I know about the human brain, <laughs> is they are so focused on what they want and so sure of, the, of how laudable their goals are that they just have no regard 
for the principles of equality and everybody participating equally. I think that's just like collateral damage. They are so cocksure of their moral authority that that supersedes everything, which is probably how all autocrats start off, I would guess. Uh, you would think that it, that that would be the foundation of of you know um, a single ruler rule, uh, so to speak. That the um, ends justify the means. Right. You know, right. I want to make sure that uh, women don't have a constitutional right. So I'm going to support Donald Trump because I know he will appoint the judges that will make that come to fruition on the Supreme Court. And, you know, to me, I, I just – that it, it speaks to this author saying that's the problem with democracy. It's clearly easily – and I say easily. I mean it's taken decades to manipulate, but it's manipulatable, right? Sure it is. Um, he talks in here about the money that's – permeates the uh, not just politics but uh, something that I didn't think about until I, I read the article but the media how these rich people have their own media to spread whatever information propaganda truth lies I guess depending on where you are on the political spectrum but they have such enormous impact on people you know when I read that I thought of what John Melrod said a couple weeks back talked about how do you have a conversation with someone who is diametrically opposed to everything you believe in? Well, you sit down, and in his case, you have a couple drinks, and then you just start a conversation about something innocuous. I don't know, maybe it's baseball. And then eventually you get to this level of confidence and understanding where you can pursue the hard topics. And, you know, my the author I read about I read a lot and talk a lot about is Richard Rohr, who talks about the only way to get community and to get unity is to love the person you really don't like and to work to create a bridge. I don't think those paradigms work right now. And I don't think they work because of what you just mentioned. There are news organizations out there that are propaganda machines and so they really hamper the effort to foster communications between people of different trains of thought because they are jamming through information that is false. And, I, you know, I don't know how you reach people who succumb to that contorted news. And, and that propagates more division. And that propagates more of this is what we need for America to move forward the hell with the with the other voices he makes the point in his article that um us boomers are to blame yeah he does <laughs> yeah and yeah. Uh, i read somewhere where uh, and i was born 1962 that i was on the uh, the tail end of the boomers so mm -hmm. i think i'm still in there um but that um you know it's really our generation that um ha has screwed this up and in that if it can be rectified if we want to continue to be a democratic society. And, and again, 
maybe a lot of people don't want to be. And I'm not saying that that's going to result in total annihilation of, of mankind. I mean, there's all sorts of governments and, you know, throughout history and throughout the world right now. Uh, so we could still function just fine. But I'm still a big believer in democracy. But the article goes on to say, you know, there's these problems we've discussed. And then there's these arcane rules that the Senate goes through in this this football ex-football coach Tommy Tuberville Tuberville throwing a temper tantrum yeah you know and and I don't agree with him but I understand that you know his point is is the military's doing something that he doesn't like with regard to abortion and if they and he's going to force them to stop now he wouldn't have that ability to force them to stop other than the Senate has given him this oversized, in, in any senator really, role. And it's just insane to me that one senator can hold up these appointments. By the way, this was the uh, same senator who, when, who was, when asked what the three branches of government were, I think his response was, well, there's the president, the House of Representatives, and the Senate. But the point is, <laughs> I think he was right the way I see things now. <laughs> well, here's the here's the problem. When these rule when the constitution was created, whenever these senate rules were created, certainly the constitution, they I think were based on the premise that everybody would act in good faith and act honorably and act as best they could toward preserving the union. Well, I that, that speaks to the Civil War, but I mean preserving the Union as in what's good for the nation. You mean in the uh, the oath that they take when they actually start their job? That, yeah, that? One would, yeah, one would think. <laughs> and so when a guy like Tommy Tuberville, he's ha- he has a right to promote this cause. He doesn't want a, the, the military to have any role in abortion. Okay, I get that. But that's a bill that you bring separately. You don't use the promotion process of two or three hundred general and flag officers to get what you want. That's the that's the essence of throwing a temper tantrum. But the rules pr- provide that because I don't think the rules envisioned somebody throwing a temper tantrum. Sure, and um, you know I, I think that um, it's unfortunate. Uh, when we learned, again, going back to high school, college, certainly law school, back in the day, our Senate was a very revered body. Oh, sure. Um, and now it's not. It, it just does really very little, and it's, it's so overtly political. And I'm not blaming Republicans or Democrats. I'm blaming both uh, for what's going on. And, and it, it's, it's a impediment really to change. One of the other things the author brought up, which when you think about a reform, which might really be good, is mm-hmm. this lifetime tenure to federal judges. Oh, You know, and, and listen, there are a lot of great judges and any more um, 
remember when we were listening to Eugene Robinson. Oh, sure. Speak, and, and I had a question for him. And I have to say, although I, I uh, the guy is a great thinker uh, and I love anything he writes. Absolutely. Uh, but I was hoping for a little more insight into my question, which was, don't the courts play an oversized oh, role in yeah. our in our society now? And he said, yes, but who else is going to do it? Because nobody else is doing anything. So it's falling to the courts, right? Well, listen, uh, if you put a, I don't know, 20-year limit, I, I know presidents want to appoint people to the court that are young, that believe in their conservatism or, or progressiveness, whatever their, their philosophy is, and that they're young, so they're going to be there for years and years. But it just seems to me that bringing in new and young people is okay, but not for life. I, I'm a big proponent of that. I, I think no matter what, people get stale. And I think we have people in the Senate who have been there for 40 or 50 years, Chuck Grassley, Mitch McConnell. Forget about their mental acuity. I don't care about that. Well, I do. But what I'm concerned about is getting stale. And you have a Supreme Court justice, that person gets stale. You just need new blood all the time. And, and in fact, I look at the Democratic Party and I think, who are you bringing up to be the next level of leaders. I mean, why did we, why is Joe Biden the foregone conclusion? A lot of political considerations there, but he was in the Senate for 40 years. So you're right. It, it, when you don't have new blood coming in, there's a certain amount of inertia and just stale thought that goes on. Yeah. And I wonder how far a reform would be if we, if we stopped lifetime appointments. And um, I mean, there are a lot of people that can be very, very good judges. I, here's my solution. First of all, if you want to be a federal judge, you have to have practiced law as a litigator for 20 years, right? And you have to. So that means you're not going to be hired till you're 45 or appointed till you're 45. And then you can only serve 20 years. Beautiful. It, it, I think that um, a smart person, right, compassionate person, can grow into the role of a judge. So I don't think it matters if they've been out five years or 15 years. The selection process just needs to get the best and the brightest in those positions. And then let's cycle them through so the next best and the brightest can come up behind them. This, this is one of the few points where you and I disagree. I don't believe you grow into the role of a judge. I think you gotta be, you've got to have command of everything right now on day one. It, it, I think that that is a nice thing, but uh, let's face it, most of what judges do only impact the litigants in front of them. It's the smaller portion that affects the big picture that we really have to worry about. And to me, that's an appointment process. That's not an experience process. That's a, let's get the right men and women in there that have the temperament, that have the big picture concept, right? And that will apply that to the betterment of the law, not because they're auditioning to be on the Supreme Court someday. I, I won't. Uh, certainly, you're right about the appointment process. I suppose my argument with you is rather modest in comparison. But what's interesting about the article that he writes is that he's really points to things that 
speak to limitations on doing well and big emphasis on narrow interest groups. He talks about news networks. He talks about big political donors. And yet we have the Supreme Court, you know, in the famous United Citizens or Citizens United case allowing finance or camp, I'm trying to say campaign finance to, a, to an extent that most people found shocking under this ruse, I shouldn't say ruse, but under this logic of First Amendment rights. But money is power. Money is tremendous power. And the articles I read, and maybe this is a failing of the press, but when they talk about these PACs, they talk about um, um, DeSantis's PAC, they talk about Trump's PAC. Those PACs are supposed to be, by law, separate from the campaign. Right. But they obviously mirror the same stuff, and they can pay for attorney fees. They can pay for, I, I thought I read somewhere where Trump's jet had a $130,000 makeover or something through, through you know, uh, campaign contributions, which is all legal. But, yeah, that... That um, influx of money to these PACs is such a, um, I don't know, it, it, it's, what do you call that, Jack? It, it, it's a pretext. No. It, you know, they, they just, they made this up and then they allowed all this money to flow into our system. And here's the problem. If you try to change the system, you are just trying to disrupt a system in which the pre the current power brokers thrive. So if you want to change campaign finance, you're changing the, the thing that keeps these men and women in office. If you want to change gerrymandering, you're trying to change the things that keep the Republicans in office in Ohio. It's really hard to break through that. It is. And the author makes the point and and you know I, I can't say that he's wrong about it but it's primarily rich white christian men who want to be protected and trying to protect themselves i you know people would argue about the whether that's a valid statement i agree with it 100 percent. well maybe that gives us some hope because as the older these rich white men get and eventually either are out of the politics or out of the um, the flow of, of policy or pass away. And the more young people, women, minorities get into power, hopefully things can change. You know, that sounds reasonable and it sounds logical, but I've been getting so pessimistic. I don't even know if I have that glimmer of hope. One more thing I want to add to my list of complaints is this process we have of, um, I don't have a good way of characterizing it, but it's sort of creating attractive paradigms to foster change. And these paradigms uh, that are based, and here's where the problem is, they're based on fiction. So let me give you an example. So... Secretaries of state come out and say, you know, we've got to protect our election systems against voter fraud. And everybody says, you know, that's a great idea. 
We don't want dead people voting. We don't want people voting three or four times. We don't want votes to be harvested. So based on that, we see legislation. Now, the reality is, as far as I can see, the amount of voter fraud or inappropriate or illegal activity is well below modest, right? It's negligible. But these new laws are created, and what they really do is work at the fringes. So they make it harder to vote under the auspice of we're trying to protect the system when they're really just making it harder for minorities and people on who have a hard time getting away from work and people who might have the hard time getting the right identification. So we create this fiction to protect the system. And then what we really do is we make it harder for people to vote. And we see that in other situations. You know, we saw that, with, I'll go back to issue one, same thing. We need to protect the Constitution. <laughs> well, that thing that you're trying to protect against was fixed in 2015. <laughs> so we create these fictions, which is, this isn't what these politicians get paid to do. They get paid to promote the public good, but they contort the system to fit their needs. But it goes back to the fact that by doing that, they get reelected. So there's obviously some interest from their constituents, right, in being disingenuous. There's people out there that are going to vote for a politician if that politician is going to pursue voter fraud because these people have been convinced that voter fraud's an issue, right? And it's... It's, I think it makes the point of this author. Is this a broken system that's gone so far that it can't be fixed? So let's go back to what the subject or the title of that article was. Trump losing in court won't be enough to save democracy, which is to say there's enough anger, enough rancor, enough dissent that democracy will be in peril no matter what. I mean, all you have to do is watch the news. All you have to do is read the paper and you see that people are lying. People don't trust each other. There are these conspiracy thoughts. And to this, all I can say is I think there has to be something cataclysmic that happens to right this ship. I have no idea what that event will be. You know, it's, it's almost as if we needed a stock market crash to create new banking laws, which since then we've watered down. But we need something terrible to happen so that everybody wakes up and says, we got to get serious about what we're doing. And, and I don't know what it's going to be, but uh, I, I don't see us working peacefully out of this. My hope is that it's not cataclysmic, that it's a slow process brought on by young people that see – what we've been doing as older people isn't working um, and that they'll hopefully change it as they get into the positions of power. You know, um, that's, that's my hope. I'm not as hopeful as you. <laughs> Jack, as always, it's great talking to you about these issues. I enjoyed the conversation with you as well, Gonzo. They never said it was going to be easy, did they? Nobody said democracy was easy work. 
Hey, our thanks to WOSU and our sound engineer, Dalton Jones. If you like what you've heard today, tell a friend. We want this show to be more than just us. We want it to be all of us. We'll be back in another week or so. Until then, so long. Thank you.